Someone once told me that no one says life is fair. When you hear that when you're young, you have no idea what it really means. Once you've lived a little, and then you lose everything, suddenly it makes sense. This podcast is a true life memoir of someone who lost everything and is rebuilding in search of who they once were. They're sharing their story as part of their healing process and so that anyone else out there living through similar circumstance knows that they're not alone. Dave the Clone here. I noticed this particular show, not unlike shows I've done before, but this one, it's been really therapeutic to record a lot of these outside. I don't know if it's, well, for one, it's definitely in my current living situation. The environment is not good for me. And I think getting outside, at least you had to motivate yourself to get there, right? To, to get up out of bed, get out of the bad environment, at least get some fresh air. And uh, maybe even get a little bit of um, encouraging energy from the nature around you. But on this journey so far, you know, making sure we remember things like you're not alone, and that there's strength within, that mornings are hard, and that there's nothing abnormal about the dissociation of displacement, that there's sanctuary and no contact, but setbacks aren't a reason to stop. That it's important to reflect. It's so hard though sometimes because it's sort of... It's like chasing a dream but having to live through a nightmare. And it's not linear. Much like dreams, right? Dreams follow their own erratic timelines and somehow in the dream we're able to comprehend that it doesn't strike us as alien or as, you know, odd. But when then you try to put the pieces together in consciousness, you realize it's a big fractured mess it's like a diamond right you know everything looks one way and then you turn it a little bit in the light and the reflections and refractions change and that's that's how it is for all of us even when we're not recovering or healing or introspecting but the fact that it is also like that when we are recovering and healing and introspecting I think it's a It's important for us to understand 
that it's not supposed to be linear, or even if we think it's supposed to be, it's not going to be. That there, are, there's no. It doesn't work that way. You know, I've been doing these recordings for a little over a month and a half, two months now. Maybe even a little bit longer than that. I'm at day 115 of sobriety. And I'm still struck after so many moments where I started to feel strong. I'm still struck by how much this will feel like living through a nightmare to chase a dream. Because the dream... Part of the dream is wishing something like this had never happened, you know? Part of the dream is wishing you could have back the vision or the hope of being able to achieve the vision that you had built in your mind and in your heart. And the nightmare is waking up every day realizing that that will never happen. Now, I know some people, it becomes a question of endurance and for a lot of people, the coping of learning to endure in a situation that is painful but at least familiar is enough of a hypnotism to stay in the situation that's killing them slowly. I mean, it used to be a trope and a stereotype, right? Marriages are miserable. Having a significant other is significantly more difficult and less fulfilling than the fairy tales made it seem, but all indications of modern life is that that was being far too sacrificial of your own mental health and peace, right? And again, I'm not a medical professional, I'm not a trained psychologist, I'm not a licensed clinical social worker, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm just a curious mind who doesn't mind doing research and oftentimes that research is life experience and I saw an interesting meme this week that said just because you haven't completed healing doesn't mean you can't help others it was unattributed meaning that just because I'm still struggling doesn't mean that there isn't something that you might find valuable in my story and even if it is just that sense of community that reinforcement that you're not alone I I, I wish I didn't but there is so many times that I will see posts in the groups in these recovery groups and these support groups and my heart breaks for the poster my heart breaks for the person writing but also in a way it feels somewhat affirming to me that I'm not alone 
And maybe not everybody's recording their experience to share with everyone else other than posting anonymously on the internet, but this is so hard to go through. And it's even harder when you think you're by yourself on a deserted island, which is a horrible feeling when you're physically, tangibly surrounded by people. Especially if before, because you, I don't know about everyone else, but I can definitely tell now more than ever how much I notice my personality is different than it ever was before. And I think at first my thought was at some point I'll get back to what I was before, but I, I, I'm beginning to believe that that's far less likely. And what's more likely is it'll become an evolved version of myself that includes elements of the before and elements of this new scarred but wiser, I would hope, at some point, version of myself. And it's undeniable that the setback has actually been a slide back that some of the progress I thought I had made, some of the strength that I was hoping had become more permanent, really had the knees knocked out of it by that brief and regretted break in the no contact. I have such a an empathy for uh, for people in drug recovery who suffer from relapses now. Not that I didn't before, but even more so now, because on their face, logic, and this is why I say it's like living through a nightmare to chase a dream, because it's like the rules and the logic all fly out the window, you know? And not that it's a communication storm we should pay attention to as much as I do lately, which I think is maybe a new coping mechanism, but social media, if you look at the podcasting space these days, there's a new format of show that has, you know, flared up in popularity like a wildfire that had gasoline thrown on it, and it's this sort of frank, almost incendiary discussion talk show featuring one or two hosts and an entire panel of random guests. A lot of this you see in the red pill space, which I didn't even realize was such so aligned with male issues, being pro-male, somewhat misogynist in some ways. I, I think there's plenty of folks who position themselves that they're not being misogynistic and that they're just being logical and pointing out what they feel is the truth, but one of the things they sort of harp on in that world is one of the differences being one sex, the male side of the spectrum, tends to be more beholden to rationale and logic and reasoning while the female side of the spectrum seems to be more in tune with emotional reasoning 
And that's a big reason. <laughs> that's a big gulf between those two types of thought. And that can account for the vast majority of disagreements and um, separation. And that doesn't even take into account all the various new gender identities and identity politics that come into play. But, and I'm, I'm wondering, being a, a guy, if I'm at least taking to heart some of the sort of acknowledgement of logic and reason being so important to me, or so, um, I don't want to say second nature, but I feel like I value reason and logic, especially when it comes to trying to chart a course and figure out a path in anything, whether it's healing, recovery, whether it's trying to evolve my career, whether it's trying to find a job, whether it's trying to figure out my next move as far as what my living space and living situation are going to be. And, but at the same time, I, I feel like I'm also pretty sensitive and my emotions do come into play, but I do feel myself wrestling with it. In fact, a lot of time I'm very, from what folks who I talk to, friends and supporters, they'll say that I'm being really hard on myself at times for feeling like the logic and the reason should matter more than the emotion, that I need to give myself the space to feel what I'm feeling, right? And I think we all do. I think it's something that in general in society we haven't done a great job of Oh my god, why can't, why do kids have to like be so loud always? It's like, <laughs> they can't just exist. <laughs> they have to come out and they have to like let the world know that they're... <laughs> oh man, whether it's my neighbors at home, I'm actually at my parents' place down in Delaware. And of course, the one spot I was able to find in the house that was quiet was the front porch, but... What is that? It's like a cue for the neighbors to come out. <laughs> oh, and the grandma's got a Karen cut and she's yelling at them. But one of the things I think I'm seeing as a reflection on some of these shows is the hosts, whether they're male or female, want to be very direct and matter-of-fact with the points that they're making. Almost to the point where I think they... I think they think that they're being um, entertaining. They're clearly doing it for the clicks and views. And, and honestly, let's talk about for a second as an aside. Super chats and the kind of money being thrown around at some of these online programs. And these shows aren't just... You know, a 40-minute podcast, a one-hour podcast. This is nine or ten people around a table for three-plus hours. I mean, not only do I, do I find myself saying, how do these folks have the endurance to put a show like this together, but... 
how does the audience have the endurance and the attention span? We're living in a world where people can't focus on something for more than a couple minutes. And these lunatics, and they are lunatics, even the ones that are more balanced, you're lunatics. I'm a lunatic, though. So don't take that as such a negative connotation, even though I'm being a little critical of you. But these lunatics are going to sit around and pontificate. And none of them have PhDs, you know. None of them are educated to have any credentials that should separate them from the crowd as somebody we should listen to about some of the things they're talking about. But they will talk and talk and talk to death. Some of these concepts... And it's really, it's, it's, it's weaponizing people's emotions against them at times. And it's very much a, I have the show, listen to me kind of mentality I get from some of these people as well. But I don't understand That it seems to be that what's being missed in a lot of this, and maybe some of the show I'm doing right now is sort of an exploration of how do we, is there a way to get to truth? It's everyone's need, want, and mission to be right. And oftentimes, instead of actually being logistically right or provably right, it's about being loud enough to shout down the people that you think are wrong. Now imagine a world devolving into this while you're waging the same kind of personal battle somewhat silently maybe, somewhat less open than maybe someone doing a podcast about it. In your own heart and mind trying to figure out what's real and what's true and meanwhile, the world around you is starting to lose its grip on these concepts. I mean, I could name drop a few, but they would just accuse me of trying to steal clout. Because that's maybe as important, if not more important, than being right. And I wouldn't want to necessarily promote them on, my, on this show. I'd much rather promote... Healing underscore out dot loud, you know, on Instagram, because he's actually speaking some truth from experience. I would actually rather talk to some psychologists who spelt, spent their careers dealing with folks who are living in the aftermath of being abused by a narcissist or having to rebuild themselves emotionally after having their lives destroyed. And yet these people who create these shows speak with the same level of authority. And in particular, there's, there are a few that, even the ones, even when I'm finding myself agreeing with what they're saying, I feel like the approach that they're taking is antithetical to anything positive about the human experience. We need to stop looking at understanding each other as a war. 
It's enough of a war within ourselves to live through a nightmare chasing a dream. To then have to have these dreams interact with the other dreams happening simultaneously all around us and have it be combative I think might be a huge reason why the world feels like it's falling apart. You know, I sit around... And in addition to doing this show, which is the first show I've ever sort of thought of doing in a more sharing personal life, trying to heal out loud kind of show. In general, I would love it if I could just sit around and talk about movies all day and talk about art. I mean, that's, that's, what, I, that's what I always wanted to do, getting into the podcasting space. You know, the very first podcast I ever listened to was a, a Lost podcast where they would recap Lost episodes and talk about theories about that very deeply dripping in mystery TV show. A show that I didn't realize is so old at this point <laughs> and started 20 years ago and ended 16 or 14 years ago. And... Um, now you have to watch it on an app like Freevee, which is going to throw commercials randomly. That show's built with commercial breaks in it, and they'll just throw a commercial in the middle of a scene. So the algorithm's kind of losing the point. You know, I, thought, I grew up thinking that all these systems were always supposed to be getting better. They were supposed to be moving in a direction of making life more convenient and easier to live and instead we have all this information at our fingertips we have all these forms of communication and people are using it to create new you know uh, boards of accusation <laughs> you know how are you gonna how are you gonna sit at a table you and a co-host bring in nine random people and then set everybody's opinions against each other and then dissect them and put people on the spot and really take people to task. And you do this for three hours and it gets cut up into these little 12 and 12 minute or less pieces that are then spewed into the feeds. And people watch it going, what the hell is this? And then what, maybe they're going to tune in for the three hour one and maybe they'll, they'll give you 20 bucks in the super chat for you to read their comment out loud. That's another one. Why are you people spending money on that? Why are you watching it, first of all? And then once you're watching it, why are you... Has our narcissism and nihilism become so endemic and ingrained in our sense of figuring out who we are that you have to make sure they read your comment so you give them $50? $50. I mean, if you've got... The kind of disposable income where that doesn't matter to you, fine. Congratulations to you. But here's the logical side of my male brain coming out here. Even if it wasn't a big deal, money is still money, at least for the time being. There's plenty of stuff happening in the news that scary stuff happening in the news that shows us that our money might not be money for much longer. And that's a whole new ball game of living through the nightmare to chase a dream. But why would you spend that kind of money just to make sure they stop 
read your comment and then respond to it for a minute or two. I don't know. So maybe when you look at the fact that this is the world and this is the world you wake up into and that you have to force yourself out of bed to go and participate in because it's the action that removes the opportunity for the depression to set in, the keeping yourself moving, how do we find the path out of the nightmare feeling, out of the nightmarish element of it? You know, it's almost like the idea of when you're anticipating vacation and then on the whole flight down, it's, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. But then as soon as you get there, it becomes real. And all the difficulties of realness begin to surface. Oh my God, the table's not ready. We showed up at the time of the reservation and the restaurant's still full and... We're going to have to wait a whole 10 minutes and holy shit and oh my god. Or oh, we're going to go swimming at the pool. Oh my god, there's so many people at the pool already. We didn't get up early enough because we wanted to sleep in because of vacation. But because we didn't get up early enough, all the people who did get up early have all the good seats. And now we got to walk a million miles to the beach. I think it's really important that we all start to try to find what's really important to us what happiness really is I mean I'm listening to a bird singing right now and that bird could care less about all the things I'm talking about it's just singing its song to the world and I think for me one of the things I lament in this nightmarish time is that life isn't that simple for me and I don't know if it's going to be and I know I want it to be but I don't know how to get there how to make it that way so what is the dream and who is the dreamer for all my Twin Peaks fans out there and at this point I don't even know if the dream is even just something as simple as feeling at peace with everything and if such a thing is going to ever be possible and I mean what is it going to take for me to feel that way is it going to be never thinking of her again or thinking of her and having it not be painful and not instantly make me feel like I'm falling into a pit of despair? Or is it going to be finally reaching some level of financial freedom? Where I'm not stressing about how to make ends meet every month? I definitely know that as some of those pieces do start to come together there is a sense of relief each time um, but a lot of it is this ongoing sense of directionlessness we're waking up in the morning and feeling like I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing first or where I should be starting and maybe the old way which is going away right the world that's disappearing 
maybe there was something comforting in that simplicity of routine, right? The distraction of the mundane, which is the exact thing that usually points to a need for change. Because it's funny, I mean, I can remember vividly when I was still in my old life, because it does feel like this is a separate life and a second life and a new life and not necessarily starting out on founded footing. Being miserable. Being miserable with the ability to pay bills. Being miserable with the ability to live on my own. Being miserable with at least opportunity that didn't require so much of a constant reselling of myself. I think one of the things that has been so eye-opening about not only being in the midst of a recovery, but having to recover so many things at once. Now, there's a lot of philosophies that we're not our job, right? We're not what we do for a living. Some of us, that is the most important thing for us, so maybe some of us are what we do. But we don't necessarily need to define ourselves by what we do to make a living. But when you don't even have that option, (laughs) it really, it dawns on you that even miserable, you know, would be preferable to lost sometimes. And this is another reason why it kind of feels like a nightmare, because everything is shifting. It's almost like watching the water in the ocean coming in and then receding and moving and flowing in different ways, riptiding sometimes, and that catches you up and pulls you down. And it's being adrift in that and feeling like you have no ability to steer yourself, where it's more nightmarish than dream. Now, some people, I think the dream would be to be free enough and secure enough in that freedom to just let yourself drift, right? Now, in my, I'm kind of constantly asking myself, what does that look like? What would that be for me? Would that be being able to wake up with no agenda and it doesn't matter because I know no matter what, I have enough in the bank to pay my bills and keep a roof over my head and keep myself fed and be able to get around any obstacle. I mean, most of the obstacles in life are financial, right? Or is it your own perspective? Because I think there are plenty of people who don't make that much money who live a pretty free life, (laughs) you know, it seems. And it's funny because I really don't have as much to base a lot of these judgments on from the new. It's more from the old, you know. I mean, I'm thinking about even back when I used to think my life with my um, former fiance was was starting to fall into the mundane, you know, we had an apartment together. We had our weekly schedule of like what night friends would come over. We would cook dinner. We would take turns cooking dinner. She did a lot more cooking than I did, though. And in an effort to make it healthy, a lot of the cooking came out pretty bland. And I think that might have been, in my mind, a bit of a metaphor for what was happening to the relationship for me. Um, or at least 
sort of one of those signs of like you're going to be eating this bland meal for the rest of your life unless things change but there would be programs on tv when we would watch cable which was already programmed for us although i gotta say these days using the word programming with so much evidence that a lot of it is sort of designed to manipulate the masses it's a little dystopian disconcerting like i feel like i'm going to be one of the older folks in the hunger games watching the hunger games take place and uh thinking about the times that led us here but this is a long-winded way of getting to saying that there were shows like um forty dollars a day you know like things i think that was on food network maybe and then there was this guy broke ass stewart who had a show on the independent film channel and he would be able to show you how he could go into different cities and spend less than a hundred bucks and do all kinds of cool stuff and now you spend half of that on one meal from doordash from a mcdonald's or something you know um and then you got people spending that in super chats watching podcasts. The money changes, the, the the entertainment changes, the mindsets change. And there's no true litmus test for whether it's for the better or for the worse. And it's all so unique based on our individual perspectives, right? And yet there are so many of us that through these various different paths we take wind up in similar situations. It may not be the same exact people, it may not be the exact same words said, but things like gaslighting, manipulation, discard, love bomb, trauma bond. The fact that these things are prevalent enough to be able to be identified via patterns and repetitions. It's pretty scary. Now, I mean, it's not like we didn't have any social media, but we've had social media for a long time before it became this sort of narcissism generator and it's to the point where there's so much of it that there are people who are able to say you can't just call everything narcissistic well I think you kind of can if everything is proving to be narcissistic you know and I think that's part of the brokenness of the system is that that sort of insisted upon doubt just because the concept of it being so prevalent is so outrageous. And then there are some theories that it's not that it's just become prevalent, it's that it was always there, we just didn't know enough about it to be able to identify it. And now that we have the ability to communicate with each other so easily and share so much information and access so much information... We are all becoming studies in these things. We're all taking an extracurricular course in trying to figure out life, which now is including 
picking up more knowledge, what we used to call useless knowledge, right? Because to be able to quote psychological studies, these were things that you would bring up at dinner parties so that you would have something interesting to say and, you know, how to impress people and how to win friends. Um, I'm suddenly blanking on the Carnegie book. How to win friends and influence people, something like that. I mean, it's funny that we wind up calling all these social media personalities influencers. But look at what we did with this. Look at what people were able to, the idea of of simp culture and something I sort of tongue-in-cheek refer to as generation whore, where people are selling their their boob sweat and farts in jars and their used bathwater. Or uh, head egg shavings. It's disgusting. And yet people are spending money on it. What does that say about how much pain there is out there? How much need there is for validation and for completion? And how much we're looking for that completion in other people and in other people that we consider unattainable? It's like this bizarre sense of worship that I'd like to say I can't possibly understand. And yet, for my own part in the world, I, I can recognize those same senses and urges in me for someone who discarded me. For someone who allowed me to trust them, for, for someone who told me I could rely on them, who... You know, I mean, I, 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 again, it was always a plan. It was always a discussion. It wasn't like one of us decided, hey, it wasn't like I decided, hey, let me hang my hat on your coat hook and just coast. It was, we don't want to be so far apart from each other. We want to be able to be together. In order to do that, one of us needs to move. And because I was the one who didn't have children and didn't have the baggage of a previous relationship and didn't have the responsibility of needing to own a home big enough to accommodate children my life was the easier life to move but that's not to say that it wasn't risking my life and when someone tells you and I think for my part one of the things that makes this so nightmarish is remembering things like actually saying If we're at the point where we're doing this, this was me saying this to my ex, then I think we're past the point of petty squabbles and little fights that would threaten our relationship or have us reconsidering. I guess the more direct way to ask that would be, are we serious enough that we're not going to break up over something stupid or we're not going to allow fights to get us to the point where we're breaking up? And maybe... I considered it selfish at the time, but any rational person might consider it more of a taking care of your own survival. It's worth acknowledging I'm risking a lot here. And for what it's worth, I remember her asking me in a separate occasion, like, how do you feel about relying on me? Are you okay with that? Are you worried about that? To me, that's a red flag question. 
if anyone ever asks me that question again in the future, then I'm going to immediately stop the plan and rethink and, and reconsider to the opposite side of being willing to do it. Because that, in my mind, in retrospect, hindsight being 2020, that's like a, an exposing of a self-doubt, which should not be there if you're inviting somebody to move into your home and telling them to consider it their home too. Why would you think I might be worried about that? Do you know of a reason I should have been worried about that? I mean, aside from the obvious risk, you're the one who is assuring me that this was a good idea, that you were cool with this, that this is a step in order for us to be able to be together. And of course, during the discard, this was all thrown in my face. So again, this is why I say now, with hindsight being what it is, that's a red flag question. And that's the problem with all of this, is it's all a mission of love until you find out that one person didn't think of love in the same way as you did. You know, one of the text exchanges previous to this breaking of no contact, uh, there was a, a comment made about... She didn't know how to be loved, and so she lashed out during our relationship. I'm not really sure how to take a comment like that. I don't know how to be loved. Because that feels an awful lot like covering up a phenomenon of constantly poking holes in everything to purposely sabotage it to then prove that you can't be loved. And that's right in the playbook. That's right in the narcissism playbook. That's not a unique brand of horrificness that was just to my relationship. It may have been something I experienced, but that's something that is very much in the lexicon of things that narcissism will present in this in the dynamic. And that's not that to you know that's something a, a scary character in a nightmare would do, uh, you know. And and that's, I guess that's the way it's like. I keep coming back to it being dream logic. Like there have been times, plenty of times in these very vivid dreams I've been having since I stopped smoking pot, where you can get the vibe that there's an energy about the person, whether it's a person you recognize from real life or a person that's just coming. F- an amalgamation created by your subconscious, whatever it might be. And you could tell that they're the bad guy. You could tell that there's a feeling of evil, of darkness, of of needing to avoid, right? And then at the same time, you're drawn. And so maybe that's a lingering element from this relationship. And I mean, really... From a lot of my relationships, there are these narcissistic elements that I, I think I didn't have the wherewithal or the education or the vocabulary to identify them as such and be smart enough to distance myself from them enough to keep myself safe. So part of the dream for me, and maybe I call it a dream because I don't know if it's really possible to, to attain, is having a sense of security and knowing that I can avoid this type of thing. Like, what is it about me? 
that finds these types of personalities attractive. There has to be a certain level of insecurity on my part, right? There has to be a certain lack of self-worth to think that I need to be with somebody who exudes that kind of level of power and controlling. I know when I was in therapy, one of the things we discovered was that I did have a a sort of power dynamic issue to my relationships and, and to what I found attractive and that after the sort of disillusionment that grew in the relationship that I was in, in with my former fiance, there was a certain element of people that I perceived to be more powerful than me were people I was attracted to. But at the same time, there was something about me also wanting to be able to help and fix and put back together people who were broken. So maybe there was something in the dichotomy of a powerful person that's also fragile and vulnerable on the inside or on their less public viewed persona and thinking that that's where I, I belonged as part of their equation of their life. Oh my God. Is there an ice cream truck coming around? That's pretty cool. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to lie at this, with the amount of time going by and reflecting on all of this so much, another element of the living through the nightmare to chase the dream is the, the loneliness factor, which is a, a more difficult loneliness than a loneliness during a hopeless romantic phase because now... It's a loneliness by design because of knowing I am in no shape or position to be a partner to anyone. Um, I'm still very broken. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of misalignment and communication issues. And it's not fair of me to try to couple with someone when I still have so much of myself to iron out. And financially, I don't have much to offer a partner right now, so there's no stability there. And at the age where, I'm, where I am in my early 40s, there's uh, the landscape is very littered with people with baggage. And oftentimes those ba- that baggage is in the form of a family. So it's not even just about the fairy tale romantic connection. And I think that's one of the things that was detrimental about the previous relationship. I think what when we met, we met in I mean like in in the tangible literal way that we met or at least began our sort of coupling was when we would be away from home we would be on the road either work conferences and then when we started actually dating meeting at hotels and on weekends halfway between us with a five and a half hour distance between us and so we were sort of starting our relationship as if we were both single and carefree and without baggage i mean i was single for sure she was in the process of divorce 
But once it became real, once it became me moving in and it's not just her, it's her and her kids. Now it's a whole new dynamic. And so, you know, maybe there's something there. I'm a definitely red flagish. Not not a red flag on a in a personal responsibility kind of way. Not a red flag about her per se, but a red flag about the situation is that expecting the dynamic of what things were like when it was just us spending time together to be able to be the same as when it would be us trying to now do the step parent new adult slash father figure. Not that that's what I wanted to be, but you can't help that, (laughs) you know, I mean, I cooked for a family (laughs) of five, sometimes six people pretty regularly. I mean, not pretty regularly, regularly for two years. If there's one thing I take away in a positive, it's that I know I'm able to do that. I used to, I remember growing up thinking, how does my mom cook meals for everybody and that they're awesome and that everybody, you know, like everything's hot at the same time. When I find when I'm cooking by myself, you know, it's like, all right, I made the potatoes, but I'm still waiting for this, or I, I made the meat, but I'm still waiting for the potatoes. And at some point you're going to, one of them is going to be cold. You know what I mean? Yet my mom was always able to cook and everything comes out hot and we'd sit down and the meal would all be hot. And when I was cooking for a family of five, four, five, six, I was able to pull that off. And you don't, you know, you don't know that you can do that till you do it. And then when you do it, you're like, oh, cool. All right, I've got that skill in my skill set. It was a difficult way of acquiring it. So. And I think the other big thing about the nightmare aspect is that it feels like it's already been so long living this way. with no clear sign that it's going to change. There are little signs that are starting to build and starting to collect and that there's momentum behind them. So again, I know it'll change, but what does that mean? Does that mean it'll, that I'll ever get to go back to feeling quote unquote good again, that I won't wake up in panic, that I won't wake up confused and feeling lost and unsure of what thing I should tackle first. And especially now I've got so many things on my plate, which is a good problem to have, but you know, it, I wanted to not feel like malaise is the new normal. I'd love a sense of peace within the chaos of how many things I need to coordinate And a sense of peace in knowing I'm able to do that. And I'm hoping I'm going to get there. I feel, I feel like documenting this. I feel like this, this diary is a step in that direction. But when I wake up again tomorrow, what's going to be the thing that makes me feel like I should be crying? A lot of odd things have kicked that off I'd really love to figure that out so we'll keep living through the nightmare to chase the dream and hopefully the dream will 
become a more cohesive picture as that continues. But for those of you still with me out there, you're not alone. There's strength within. Mornings are hard. And it's normal to feel the dissociation of displacement. As difficult as it might be, there's sanctuary and going no contact. And even once you do, setbacks are not a reason to stop. And it's always good to reflect. And for anyone else who identifies with the concept, we got to keep living through the nightmare to chase the dream. Otherwise, we'll never get there. So maybe that's something we can all do together. If any of this is resonating, you want to jump into the conversation, you want to tell some of your story, or just send me some feedback, it's hollow9podcast at gmail.com. It's the word hollow, the number nine, I-N-E, podcast. All of that as one word at gmail.com. Put attention, feeling it, healing it in the subject line. And as always, if anybody's in a place where the darkness is getting too strong and just listening to a podcast isn't enough, please reach out to the resources in your area. And at the very least, at the very worst case scenario, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is always listed and linked in the show notes. There is no shame in asking for help. Because there is no reason that an intermission should be considered the final act when there's a whole act left to come so let's go through what we have to it's called healing it's non-linear and sometimes more often than not it will feel like a nightmare but there is another side I firmly believe there's another side to this that I want to see and I think you all do too if you're still with me listening So, we're going to keep trying to get there. Until next time. You've been listening to a production of the Hollow Nine Network. Feeling It, Healing It, A Diary of Recovery, featuring Dave Maresca. Thank you for listening to Feeling It, Healing It, A Diary of Recovery. Dave Maresca is not a trained medical professional, psychologist, psychiatrist, or licensed professional trained in providing therapeutic mental health care. This podcast is an account of his life experiences and meant to be just that. Any advice or suggestions made in the extemporaneous dialogue of the podcast is not intended to be medical or legal advice. If such advice is what you're seeking, you are encouraged to seek out the services of a licensed professional. The Hollow Nine Network and Dave Maraska assume no liability or responsibility for the information provided in these episodes. <laughs>